All right, we are in Acts 21. We got halfway through it last week. And as you know, Paul was felt impelled to go to Jerusalem, even though he was told multiple times, don't go, don't go. Agabus the prophet came to him and actually took his belt, Paul's belt and tied, tied his hands up with it and said, the person who wears this belt will be tied up uh, and put in prison. And despite all of these warnings, Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Uh, and one of the principal reasons he was compelled to go to Jerusalem is because there was still uh, an underlying division in the church. And this started back, you saw it first rear its ugly head uh, when uh, Peter went, went uh, to the Samaritans and the church, the Jerusalem church, challenged him. It then uh, got worse and worse. It culminated in the Jerusalem Council, uh, where they finally said, and this was the issue about, well, if Gentiles are coming to the Lord, they must first be Jews. They must first be Hebrews. They must first adopt the Mosaic Code. They must be, they must be Hebrew in every way before they can be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian unless you are a Hebrew, unless you are a practicing Jew. And ultimately, the church uh, discarded that view. But this was a long and painful process. Uh, and this process was continuing as he went back to Jerusalem and he knew there was an underlying division there in the church, still to this date. So if you would, let's continue and read with me as we continue this chapter with verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Now, as I said to you before, James is the half-brother of Jesus. James is effectively the head of the Jerusalem church. And interestingly, James was not a, uh, a committed Christian while Jesus was alive. He did not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ until after Jesus was crucified. Uh, but, but boy, he accepted it big time uh, and became the head of, head of the Jerusalem church and will be, will be martyred. He will be martyred. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Verse 20. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. As I said to you last week, this was the underlying premise. That's great. You're doing a good job. You're out there uh, speaking to the Gentiles. But now, Brother Paul, you should be aware of the fact that there are a lot of Jews, devout Jews, who accept Christianity, but they are zealous for the law. Zealous for the law meaning they want to continue with the Mosaic traditions uh, and all the ceremonies and everything that is embraced in Judaism. Zealous for the law. That's what that means. Verse 21, they have been informed, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now, we know that he never, ever told Jews to do that. His ministry primarily was to Gentiles, and he told Gentiles to do that. Now, I'm sure there was spillover to Jewish people who heard this, but he's obviously 
his, his, his lessons to the Gentiles were, you embrace Christianity. Christianity is the new covenant. It supersedes the old covenant. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to give you some verses that we'll work our way through. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do, so do what we tell you. In other words, make us happy. There's going to be a lot of Jews who want the law, who know that you're here, and they hate you. And now we want you to do something that we believe will advance the interests of our work amongst them. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. This is called a Nazarite vow. N-A-Z-E-R-I-T-E, Nazarite vow. It comes out of the Mosaic tradition. You, if you're interested in reading it, we won't do it here, but it's in Numbers chapter 6. talks about what a Nazarite vow is. Paul has previously taken a Nazarite vow in one, one period of time. Effectively what it meant, it was a vow of purification before God, uh, and you determined for how many days it would be. There was no set period of time you determined what that would be. During that period of time, you, typically you would uh, abstain from all uh, wine, anything from the vine, vinegar. You would have none, none of that during that period of time. You might even abstain from certain foods. Uh, and you would not cut your hair. And then when the period was over, you would cut your hair, almost to the point of being bald, and bring the hair to the temple, and the priests would burn the hair. That's what it was, okay? That's what it was. I mean, it's amazing when you think about this. This is the church people, the Jerusalem church directing him. This is what we want you to do. This is why you have to get a sense of what was going on in the early church. It was Jewish. The church was Jewish. And it was this irresistible tug between the Jewish people, the Jewish forces that, that, that come out of the Mosaic tradition, uh, who had accepted Jesus but insisted, insisted on everything that was Jewish, all the traditions. Well, Paul has made it very clear to us what he thinks about that. We're going to go through it. But here, they insist, we want you to take this vow. And Paul himself, a couple chapters before, has taken this vow himself. He did it at one time when he when his life was threatened. And, and we want you to pay the expenses because it wasn't cheap to do this. You had to go into the temple and make arrangements with the priests and pay for this, for this rite. And then, then it continues. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Again, obedience to the law. Circle that, obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So at this point, you see, they didn't really have an issue so much with the Gentiles. They were saying, all right, we've already told the Gentiles what they were, but you are a Jew, and we have Jews here, and we want you to prove that you're a good Jew, that you're a practicing Jew. 
And this is how you're going to do it. And so verse 26, the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So now you understand what's going on, what the background is. Now, let's take a look at, at uh, some appropriate verses as we see uh, how God views the Jewish people and their traditions. And Hebrews is a book, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews. It's not sure who wrote Hebrews. But Hebrews very much is close to, is identical to the theology that Paul preached. So it was probably someone who was close to Paul. Some people say it was Barnabas. Uh, some people say it was Apollos. We don't know. But it, was, it is God's letter to the Jewish people, effectively to say, stop being Hebrew. Effectively, that's what this letter with Hebrews is all about. So if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amen? One priest for all time, one sacrifice for all time, not multiple sacrifice, not millions of animals uh, day after day, and so we understand it. And so what about those people now? What about those people who are tied to the traditions, who are tied to the customs? What would Paul, what is Paul's position about that? If we could have him speak at length. Well, he has spoken at length on this in Romans. So turn with me, if you would, to Romans uh, chapter 14. So what about those people who are tied to the traditions and customs? How do, how do we handle that? They're Christians. They're Christians, yet they're tied to customs and, and traditions that we necessarily don't believe in. Romans 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted them. 
Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or fails. And he will stand for the and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, if you are a committed Christian, you serve the Lord, even though we may disagree as to your custom, as long as you are not worshiping your custom, that you have not made your customs an idol, that you are not putting the customs on the same pedestal with the Lord Jesus, but for you it has become a way of memorial, memorializing your, your faith, then we need to respect that. We may not agree with it. It may not be for us. Our faith may not, may not go on that, but we need to respect it. And that's a lesson today, because for a lot of us, we come down like a, like a ton of bricks on, on people whose practices may differ from us. And so the question is, we need to look at the heart. We need to look at the heart of people. Are they serving God? Do they love God? And are these issues really, in the end, are they critically important or are they not important? And we're going to go on and listen to what he says. Continuing on in verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Well, you know, certainly, if you're Jewish and you have the Jewish calendar, you know that there are certain days on the Jewish calendar that are, you know, that are uh, very sacrosanct. You know that, Rosh Hashanah, the holy days. Uh, and so the question is, if you view those days for you, you're a Christian, but you're also still practicing as, uh, some of the Jewish customs, if that's critical for you, and yet you serve God, you love God, Respect it. Be respectful of that. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, but he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. So in other words... As long as we are not elevating these traditions and customs to the place of the Lord Jesus, as long as we're not doing that, and we're going to continue to study this because this is important, don't come down, don't judge, uh, don't come down hard on, on, on uh, these kinds of traditions. Then turn to verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And again, this is, an ex this is something that we as Christians got to really get our hands on this. Because a lot of us really love the judgment issue. Oh, yes. You know, it's so easy, isn't it? I mean, really. I mean, we are who we are. And we're, we are elevated on the food chain. The spiritual food chain. You know what I'm talking about. We're up here, maybe up here, and they're down here. And the funny thing is, I've come from places that thought they were up here, and you were over here. And that's exactly what happens in the world, because each one of us in some place elevates our own little cultural group as being further up on the food chain. And here you have the man 
the greatest evangelist, the greatest missionary in the history of the world, the person who has given us effectively two-thirds of the New Testament, the very doctrine of our church, telling you, and we're going to go back and hear what, again what he says about these traditions, which he doesn't think are worth anything. He doesn't observe them, really. He doesn't believe they're worth observing because he believes that in Jesus Christ, we have complete fulfillment in Jesus as to everything. And he's gonna, we're going to talk about that. But yet, for those people whose faith is weak or not as fully developed or in some way is tied to these issues, as long as they don't elevate the customs and traditions to Jesus, but is used as a memorial to Jesus, we have to be very careful. And so continuing on, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Stumbling block. Let us not be a stumbling block. How many of us have been stumbling blocks, even in our own families, even with our own children, even with our siblings? Have we in some way, because we were misguided, come down on, a, on people like a ton of bricks, made judgments about people, and instead of elevating Jesus Christ, elevated some religious issue that you've had, and in some way then become a stumbling block to Jesus? You answer that question. To you. That's between you and the Lord. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. There it is, brother. You want to know what his stand is? Nothing is unclean. And frankly, Jesus would say the same thing. Jesus made it very clear. What goes into a man's mouth is not what condemns him. It's what comes out of his mouth. Okay? So you want to know basically what, what, the Bible, what the Bible's teaching is? That's the Bible's teaching. It's not what you're eating. It's not what you're drinking. It's what your tongue is doing. Okay? But, but, but. There are people whose customs and traditions tie them to some of these things, and we don't want to, we don't want to pass judgment on them. We don't want to come down on, a, on them as a ton of bricks as long as these customs and traditions are not replacing Christianity, meaning the worship of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If it memorializes your faith, if it memorializes your faith, that's fine. And there's a dif differentiation. Now, again, to understand, and there's a nuance here so that you get, you get the understanding of this. Turn, if you would, uh, with me to Galatians. And Galatians was the first book in the New Testament, all right? The, the first reported book, uh, the Epistle of Galatians. And you get an early understanding of Paul's doctrine in this regard. Galatians chapter 4. Now he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Gentiles. It's important. This epistle is written to Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles who he has converted, brought to Christianity, and now the Judaizers are coming in and trying to convince these people that they need to go back and embrace the Mosaic Code and all the traditions. That's what's going on here. That's the pretext of this. Verse 8, formally, formally, when you did not 
know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? What weak and miserable principles? The weak and, princi weak and miserable principles refer to the Mosaic Code. Now, I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments, okay? I'm talking about the hundreds and hundreds of codes and legalisms that come out of, of Leviticus that you see, all right? All right? Do you wish... Look what he says. You understand this is the same guy who's now going to take this Nazarite vow? You understand the differentiation here. The same man. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Okay? All right? So let's understand this. So I want you to get the picture here. He's going back to the Gentiles, and he's saying to the Gentiles, don't be enslaved. Don't be enslaved by all of the Jewish customs and traditions. That's all been replaced by Christ. But he doesn't say to the Jews, give it all up. Abandon it all. He doesn't tell them that. Because what he's interested in doing is promoting the work of Jesus Christ. And it was more important for Paul that you become a Christian rather than what kind of dress you would wear or what kind of hat you would wear or what holiday you would, you would uh, celebrate. In the end, he understood this, that God didn't look at that. God looked at your heart. And this is such an important thing for us to understand. Uh, and I, I'm going to give you an extraordinary insight into Paul if you really want to understand how he did this. How was he able to do this? And what does it mean for us, a lesson for us? And I, I really take a lot out of this particular passage. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 19, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, 
that I might share, that they, that I may share in its blessings. Amen? I mean, you want, you, you want to know what kind of a guy he was? I just gave you his, his, his gospel. I gave you his theology. You see what he thought. You understand what he thought. He was not under the law. He didn't go back. He didn't observe, truly observe these Mosaic customs. He understood that in Jesus Christ, it surpassed all of those things. That in Jesus, the law was fulfilled. That you couldn't get that through, through the uh, customs and the traditions of the Jewish people. But yet, here's what he understood. If he was going to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, then put yourself in his shoes. Because you want to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? You come across people who, who you think or want to get to know Jesus Christ, yet they're, and somehow they do some religious custom, some practice that you feel is not consistent with the gospel, and you're right, it isn't. Yet, what do we do? We sit there and we pontificate. We make a point of, of, of raising these differentials. And instead, do we bring people to Jesus Christ? Do we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or instead, do we block Jesus with our legalism? To me, it's, it's such a powerful thing. So how could this, I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm studying these passages for months, and I see a guy who writes Romans. I see a man who writes Romans who basically gives us the most elegant interpretation of the theology of Jesus Christ, who talks about the fact that all, of, all that's gone before has now culminated in one man, in God through Jesus Christ. All of the rites, all of the purification, all of that is now in Jesus. There's no need to go anymore to the temple. It's in Jesus. And yet, when he goes to the church... In order to keep the church together from separating and dividing, in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, in order to keep the Jewish people part of the community, what does he do? He agrees to go and do a Nazarite vow. He agrees to go to the temple. He agrees to go there and publicly be part of the purification. He pays for it. He pays for himself and he pays for these other guys. And so that he would publicly demonstrate to the Jewish people, look, I'm Jewish just like you. I'm part of your community, but I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. And so what a lesson that is for me. What a lesson that is for me when I come across people from other denominations, people from other, other walks of life in terms of, of being a Christian, uh, and it makes me focus on what's really critical. And there's only one thing that's critical. Jesus. 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 And, and to me, this is an unbelievably beautiful picture that a man could say that, that he could take all, that he could actually take himself and debase himself so that he understood that what's really important is not basically my personal views, but Jesus. And I don't want to get in the way of anybody coming to understand Jesus. And boy, that's a lesson for us truly, brothers and sisters. What a, what a lesson that is. And um, especially when you know how deep his, his feelings were and how deep his theology is when you read this. Now, he gets done with this. 
And what happens is a proverb that you will not find in the Bible, and that is, no good deed goes unpunished. I'm making that up, but uh, the point is, he does, every, he, does, he does everything that they wanted him to do. He tries to placate them and keep everything together. And let's see what happens, how successful this is. Verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, by the way, they were not completely over. They were nearly over. This, again, we're back in Acts chapter 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia. Now, these are not Christian Jews. These are Jews that knew him from Ephesus, his pals from Ephesus. You remember, you remember how that went, how they basically tried to murder him, all right? Well, they, they decided to take a, a day trip and, and go down and, and to Jerusalem. Uh, well, they're there for this, uh, the, the ceremonies. Uh, and they see him. They see him now in the temple saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Verse 29, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Let's understand what's going on here. In the temple, there's an area called the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles. And that was an area outside of the, the holier area of the temple where Gentiles were allowed to gather. But no one who was not a fully sanctified Jew could go into uh, the, the area of the temple beyond the court of the Gentiles. Well, they saw Paul in there, and they assumed that he had brought Gentiles in there with him because they knew that's basically what his ministry was, Gentiles. He was with Gentiles all the time. Now, this was a big deal if you were a Jew because on the temple wall in that area, if you would come in on the wall, and believe it or not, there was a sign that said the following, and it was allowed under Roman law. If you walk into this area and are not Jewish, you can be summarily executed. And that had the power of Roman law. The Romans effectively had given that to the Jews to keep peace. Basically, you walk in here and you are not a Jew, you can be put to death. So now you understand, it's funny how this all comes about when you read this when you're younger and you're trying to understand the animus. What would make people go nuts like this? Why would they go nuts? Well, this is why they would go nuts. They thought he had, that he had brought Gentiles in there with him. Uh, and, and so now they're, 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 they want to kill him. What's new? What's new, right? Verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. Do you wonder how this man could get up in the morning? I mean, are you like at this point in Acts, is your head going to explode? I'm like, because I go from day to day, week to week when I study this, and I go, when does it end? I mean, do you think he got up in the morning and said, Lord, I'm just doing your work. 
I'm doing what you told me to do, Lord, from the day you struck me down in Damascus. Why, God? Why every place I go? Why do they hate me? Why do they want to kill me? Okay? When you're having a bad day, go back and read this. You know? When you go back and you're saying, Lord Jesus, I don't understand it. You know I go to church. I'm trying to serve you, God. I'm trying to do whatever I can to advance the gospel. I speak to people. I read the Bible. I do Bible studies. Why, well, God, really? Yes, you're alone. Nobody, that's never happened to anybody else. It's really, it's really you we're picking on. You're alone. You are a lone martyr. Look at this man. City after city. And it wasn't just that they, they were mean to him. They were going to kill him. They were going to kill him. They seize them. The whole city rises up. And so while it's, it's, it's amazing. Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, all right, make no mistake about it, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. Probably almost a thousand soldiers were in were in residence there in that fort. So a, a pretty significant number of soldiers came down there. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. <laughs> and he can't even answer. Who are you and what have you done? And instead of being able to answer, it says, Verse 34, some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another, and since the commander could not get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. Can you just imagine what this is like? You're by yourself, surrounded probably by hundreds of screaming Jews who want to kill you, who knows what stones and sticks that they have. The entire city is in an uproar. And now he's trying to get a straight answer from you. What do you, who are, and he can't, you go to answer, I can't even hear you. So he takes him and brings him into a private place. Uh, and he brings him, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. He couldn't even walk. They'd actually pick him up and carry him. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. Uh, and it's just an astonishing picture of what this man has gone through. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Uh, and and uh, uh, when he says, do you speak Greek, uh, meaning to Paul, do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 ter terrorists out into the desert some time ago. That's interesting. Terrorists from Egypt. I'll just leave that alone. 39. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. You've got to love it. Just let me speak to the people. The same people that want to kill you? Yes. Just let me speak to them. The same people when you were in Ephesus, you wanted to go in to the 25,000 in the stadium who wanted to kill you? Yes. Just let me. It's like this guy is just an amazing person. Just please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, 
Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he then spoke to them in Aramaic. Now, he has not yet indicated, I am a Roman citizen. He has not said that. In the next chapter, when he's about to be beat and punished, he's going to drop that bomb, and that will have pretty big impl implications. But uh, I want to finish up with this one verse, uh, because understanding this issue about the temple and nobody but a, but the, a Jew could get into the uh, sacred area of the temple, uh, I want to read what, have you read what Paul wrote in his letter to uh, Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14, and he's speaking now about Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and, is, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man, one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Amen. So in other words, Gentile and Jew are one. The barriers in the temple no longer exist. The holy of holies where no one else can go are destroyed and knocked down. And in fact, ultimately, I believe that God understood that this would have been a significant barrier to the Christian movement, uh, to the growth of the Christian church, had uh, the Jewish Christians continued to <coughs> maintain this position. And so what happens in A.D. 70? In A.D. 70, the temple is destroyed. So you're elevating the temple, are you? You're raising the temple up so that it's an obstacle to your Christian worship. The temple is so important and your religious rights to the temple are so important that you want people, all Christians, to go there and continue to observe those. Well, how's it working for you now if the temple is removed? If the temple is removed, then if you say, oh, how could God... How could, why would God have allowed, how would God, why would God have allowed this to take place? God would allow it to take place what God believes is a stumbling block in your life. So if you wonder why certain things may happen to you, why certain problems come up and you view them as a problem and God looks at the long-term picture and understands this needs to be taken away from you, this is a distraction. I believe, I truly believe, now that I've been studying this, I truly believe that that's what this is about. Let's go before the Lord and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you've been with us today through the Holy Spirit. Our, these words have touched our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for a class that is dedicated to the study of the word and comes out week after week. Lord, I ask that these words be multiplied in our heart, that we consider them this, this coming week, and that we apply it in our daily walk. Lord, I ask also that you continue to put a wall of protection around all these dear people and bring them back safely next week. I ask you that the, you bless the service to come as well. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.